Good morning, everyone. What a song. It's a good setup for what I want to talk about for the past two weeks. We've all been focusing on London, haven't we? <laughs> the brightest and best gathered from all over the world. And uh, it's just been spectacular, hasn't it? And when, when you look at these athletes with their, the, and, and you see, you know the sacrifice they went through and, and, and the sweat labor that went into it. it it's just, it's really something. And, and then what it's all about is the type of precious metal they put around your neck. That's what they're all working for, is that gold medal. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about how we keep things in perspective. I need help talking about this because I'm just a human being that walks around on feet of clay and uh, just a crooked stick. So let's ask God for help right now. Lord Jesus, it is so easy, so easy living here in these three dimensions of time and space and, 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 and all that comes at us to forget what matters most put our focus on things too limited and too linear. So help us today as we learn from you and look at your word and see a much bigger eternal picture. Thank you for everybody here. I pray, Father, that hearts will be open, not just ears, because we need your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, and I want to welcome our friends over at the venue you haven't gone to the venue. That's where Darcy and I worship here on Sunday mornings. They rock the house over there. I love it there. And then our new Cactus uh, location is meeting at Town Center. We welcome them. We want to talk today about a uh, trap that's easy to fall into. And even if you're a follower of Jesus, we all want to live our lives to make a difference. But this one trap is one we need to avoid. To set the stage for this, I want you to go on an airplane flight with me. Darcy and I were flying from Phoenix to Tampa, St. Pete, Florida, by way of Dallas, Texas. We switched planes in Dallas and took off. We were sitting in those nice, comfortable seats at the front of the plane because we travel a lot. It's easy to end up up there. About halfway to Florida, a man stood up. And he cased that front first-class section, to, picked out the prettiest girl to hit on. I couldn't disagree with him. <laughs> I thought he had wonderful taste. He came up next to Darcy, and he got down on one knee. <laughs> and, he, and he whispered one of those whispers that everybody can hear. Hey, beautiful lady, do you know who I am? And she turned, his face is right there bloodshot eyes, the bourbon on his breath. He said, I'm sorry, I don't recognize you. He says, I'm the great Bobby Hayes. And then she looked over at me, and I looked up from my book and said, oh, honey, he, he played wide receiver for the Cowboys back in the 70s. We've watched him play ball. Glad to be recognized, he filled in more of the resume. He says, I'm the fastest man in the world. Fastest man in the world looked like he was going to need a walker to start hitting on pretty women. <laughs> He says, I'm Bobby the Bullet Hayes. Bobby the Bullet Hayes looked more like a spent casing. <laughs> it's what happens when you have those guys spearing you with those helmets for year after year. 
He says, when I was in college, I broke the NCAA record in the 100. I was drafted by the U.S. Olympic team, and I represented us in the 1964 Tokyo Olympics, and it was there that I tied the world record in the 100, and I broke the world record in the 4 by. Then you know what he did? He reached in his blazer pocket, and he took out the gold medal from the 1964 Olympics, put it right down in front of Darcy, and said, I'm Bobby the Bullet Hayes. I'm the fastest man in the world. She did what I think you're supposed to do. She took that gold medal in her hands and she looked up that faded ribbon to his sad face and said, oh, Bobby, I'm glad, we, this is a beautiful medal. I'm glad we got to meet you. Satisfied that he got what he wanted, he went through the curtain. We heard him say very clearly to the people in the front row, do you know who I am? And he spent the rest of the flight introducing himself and showing his medal to everybody, the fastest man in the world. By the way, the fastest man in the world, Usain Bolt, Usain Bolt beat him by 3.7 seconds this week. Now remember, back then they were running in yards. Now they're measured in meters, and meters are actually three inches longer than a yard. So he ran a shorter time and a farther distance. So it's only a moment in time, and yet he was stuck in that moment in time. Because he was, well, he had drank the Kool-Aid that's offered our culture. You know, Darcy and I, well, our hearts broke for Bobby Hayes. We just broke for him. We, we felt so sad for Bobby. And yet we thought, this is exactly how you end up if you pursue the goals of this world. I have a friend named Dan Bolin. Dan lives in East Texas, and he was participating in a 10K race that was being put on at Texas A&M University. Now, Dan wasn't the slowest guy in the race, but he was hoping to maybe find that guy and pace him. <laughs> he was just a kind of a middle-class guy trying to finish a 10K race. And he was stretching out there, and it, it was being staged right there in the shadow of Kyle Field where the Aggies play football. And so he was there with a bunch of people, and they were all stretching out, getting ready, when he noticed a disturbance right over by the, at the base of the stadium. And he thought somebody might be in distress because people were gathered around. He went over to see what it was, and he got over close, and he was surprised to see everybody surrounding a big industrial dumpster. And when he looked inside to see what, yeah, there was this dumpster filled with hundreds of trophies and plaques. Apparently, the athletic de department at Texas A&M was making room for a new generation of champions. And yet as he looked at those, he thought, people work very hard for these. They sacrifice years of their life for that Kodak moment when they could hold these up. And now these are waiting for a truck to come and crush them to dust and throw them in a landfill. When that race finally started and he was padding down the road, all he could think about is how many things have I lived my life for or someday going to end up in heaven's dumpster picked up by its trucks and crushed to dust and end up in its landfill. My friends, it is easy to get off course. Most people, Christians included, have a tendency to aim their life at a future focused on success. It's the way we've been brought up. I mean, for crying out loud, we're, from the very beginning, we're graded, we're compared, we're rewarded based on our performance. 
We get report cards and paychecks that all are supposed to be reflections of how we're doing. And so it just makes sense that it would be easy to get intoxicated with this mindset that I've got to pursue success with everything about me. And yet success is a trap. It's a trap that any of us can fall into. And it's because of the way we measure success. Let me rattle off the four basic dimensions of how we measure success. Because once you see those, you understand how it works, and you see why this is a trap for fools if we're not careful. What's the number one way we measure success? Wealth. Wealth. I mean, if I asked you how we measure them, you'd probably give me the same one. Well, by the way, this is why I think people such, put such an inordinate priority on education. And, and I've seen parents, I mean, they are rabid about their kids getting this high education. In fact, and by the way, don't get me wrong, I mean, I'm, I'm an educated person, Dars, we're educated, our kids are educated. We see the cause effect between disciplining your mind and your intellect and, and, and functioning in life, we see that. But education isn't sovereign. It's just education. It's a, it's a wonderful means to a legitimate end when it's kept in balance. But when it's put up on a pedestal and worshipped, down you go. Down goes families. And why is such a priority put on that? Many times you'd find, well, of course, follow the money. Well, if they get in the best schools, and they're going to get the best jobs, and then they'll, they'll make the good money, and they'll live in a nice home, and they'll raise pretty grandkids, and, and, and say, you know, all that stuff. Wealth is one of the ways. Beauty is another way. Power is the third way we measure. And the fourth way we measure success is fame. Wealth, beauty, power, fame are the dimensions of Western success. You want to see this? Wait till Christmas time when the Christmas cards come and inside is that folded up uh, annual report. <laughs> you open that up and just put these four filters in front of it and start to read. They put wealth, beauty, power, fame and just start to read the reports many times. My son's captain of his football team. My daughter's president of the student council. My son got a full ride to Yale. My daughter graduated in her first job as a six-figure income, first number in the one. My son's engaged a girl who has lips like Angelina Jolie. <laughs> By the way, don't give me, like, we love to hear the things about our friends' kids. Of course we do. We're interested in our friends. Except sometimes we know these families well enough to know the reason this is what they're reporting on is because this is what they're living for. This is what's most important to them. And we could be just like them. Easy, easy to get just like them by putting so much emphasis on things that are superficial and don't matter. There was a little girl that came over to her visitor grandmother all through her childhood. And, and, she, and, and, and you always had to hug grandmother at the front door. And grandmother always, when she would hug her, she'd reach down and grab the pinch right here, these folds right here on the side. Say, oh, honey, watch out. It's getting a little chubby there. Watch out. Don't want to let that happen. Shouldn't be surprising this girl had an unbelievable eating disorder that just about killed her. Because somebody was putting emphasis on things that don't ultimately matter. But this is the world we live in, isn't it? It comes at us. 
But here's what we need to know. We can sabotage our greater impact on the world as well as forfeit our eternal reward when we make success the goal of our lives rather than the outcome of living a truly great life. Let me say that one again. We can sabotage our greater impact on the world as well as forfeit our eternal reward when we make success the goal of our lives rather than the outcome of living a truly great life. Because you see, when we over-prioritize wealth and beauty and power and fame, we automatically set ourselves up for a life that is self-absorbed, unnecessarily complicated, and one that can't ever be satisfied. It's just the nature of the beast that when that's what you're living for, that's what you've invited into your heart. And guess what else happens when we make that the priority of our homes? We just invited sibling rivalry in the, in the door, big time. Because you got you to understand how the game is played. For instance, Bill, Bill, let's say Bill and I were salesmen at a big company. Okay? Now, obviously we want our company to thrive, but there's two ways that I win. I win when I make a big sale, and I win when Bill loses one. You see how sibling rivalry is invited in the house? That it becomes toxic and competitive. It doesn't want to bring the best out of somebody. It doesn't want to empathize with somebody's loss. It doesn't want to encourage somebody to get better unless it makes us look bad. And so that's the problem with all of this. There's nothing wrong with going for the gold if that's the moment in time you're supposed to go for it. Then it's a moment in time and you move on. It was a, we stood on the top thing and we got our accolades and then you step off of the thing and you move on. And yet when our lives are pushed, it's easy to find ourselves stuck like poor Bobby Hayes. Trying to get everybody to remember and go back to that one. When that one moment in time when we thought we actually were something. When we live our lives for the measurements of success, we need to know a couple of things. First of all, God places no value on these four measurements in the Bible. Now, this, by, by the way, don't, please don't get me wrong. There's absolutely nothing wrong with wealth or beauty or power or fame. Nothing, in and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with them. I'm looking at a, 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 an audience, people, people listening online, that, that, that you do well. You're, you, you're financially successful. You're very easy on the eyes. Uh, when you speak up, uh, you know, the, a lot of you are, because of the way you've lived your life, people want to hear what you have to say, and, and you, you wield influence. And some of you have, have gotten uh, recognition just by the, your good track. There's nothing wrong with this in and of themselves, but you just got to know that God places no priority on them in the Bible. On top of that, you don't even need his help to have that kind of a life, to be a successful person. There's all kinds of people that are pursuing wealth, beauty, power, fame, and they're going to get what they're going after, and God doesn't have to weigh in on it at all. On top of that, one of the other problems of, of when we pursue these things is, is that we're most likely denying ourselves relationships and vocational opportunities that God has more picked out for us many times because the people, it doesn't have the resume. It doesn't, it doesn't have, the people don't have the pedigree that we feel is needed to be alongside of us to, uh, to, to prop up this whole success illusion. But besides those three things, the fourth big reason why you don't want to aim your life at this is you're aiming low. You're aiming real low. There's something far better. God's Word encourages us to aim our lives at a future of true greatness, to aim our lives at a future 
of true greatness. And I want to go to a passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 20. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Look at how it starts out here. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. Him is Jesus. And kneeling before Jesus, she asked him something. And he said to her, what, what did you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right and one at your left in your kingdom. In your kingdom. Okay, now I think we need to stop for a second, hit the pause button on this passage, and set some context so you know what's going on here. Because you need to see there, this is part of a bigger drama that's happening right there in Matthew 20 and, and Matthew 19. Time-wise, the clock is ticking down on Jesus. It's just, in fact, what's the very next thing in chapter 21? The triumphal entry of Jesus, Palm Sunday. He's just a little over a week away from climbing up on the cross and hanging between heaven and earth and paying his life for our sin. All hell is about to break loose on Jesus, and he knows it's coming. And so because of that, what he's doing in these last days before that is he spends a lot of time really pouring into his disciples and teaching them things and using whatever opportunities in his coming and going to pass on the, the, the principles they need for once he's gone back into heaven and they're left in charge of planting the Christian movement. So... So if you go back to chapter 19, let me show you what happened in 19 that set up this, this mother coming and making this request. In chapter 19, he was approached right in the middle of the chapter by a young man who was very well off, a very successful young man, and he was wealthy, and he came to Jesus and he asked Jesus what he had to do to, to gain eternal life. And, and in the process of asking this question, he was tipping his hand. Basically, he was, he was coming from, you know, the mindset of a person in that situation. I'm very self-sufficient. I know I can pull out my debit card and solve the bulk of my problems. I, I can push my weight around and see things happen. And so this is one thing that I think you can weigh in on. And so what do I need to do? Because I've done all this other stuff, but I think I've got what it takes. What do I need to do to get this eternal life? Well, Jesus could see right through the guy. And he knew the bigger problem of his heart. And so Jesus started rattling off some of the commandments. But he went to the second half of them. You know, the, the commandments are kind of divided into two parts. The first one's focus on our relationship with God, and the second one, relationship with each other. He says, don't, don't, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. And then he summarizes it all, and treat your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's not in the original Ten Commandments, is it? That's a summary of those four that Jesus had come up with to basically encompass all those things. In other words, it, you wouldn't want somebody committing adultery with your spouse or lying to you or misrepresenting you to somebody else or, or, or always coveting what you have and, and trying to undermine you. You wouldn't want that. So treat other people the way you would want them to treat you. And so he, he summarized all this. So this kid, this kid comes, he says, I've done all those things since my youth. But Jesus knew his heart. No, you still think this is a performance. You still think that this is about gold medals or silver medals or bronze medals. You don't get it. And so he, he went for the jugular. He says, okay, here's what you do. Sell all you have. Give that money to the poor and come follow me and you'll have unbelievable rewards in heaven. In fact, let's read it right from the scripture. 
He says, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come follow me. And when the young, look what, when he heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now, by the way, let's make sure we're not reading something in it. This is not an overarching principle to all people of means. He's not saying that everybody that has means should sell. He was talking to this specific guy about his specific problem. And he knew what the problem was, and, and this guy went away. He felt bad about it. Well, then Peter follows up with this one. And Peter pointed out to Jesus that the disciples had indeed done the very thing that Jesus suggested this rich young man do. Look at Matthew 19, verse 27 and following. The exchange went something like this. Then Peter said in reply, well, we see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brother or sister or father or mother or children or lands for, not, for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So it is this backdrop that prompted the mother of James and John to approach Jesus. That's why she made this request in the middle of chapter 20. By the way, if you look in your Bible, What's right before verse 20 in chapter 20? Jesus spends a couple verses. He basically says, look, here's what's coming down, guys. We're going to 